Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 8. Paul writes, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now it's clear from here and other places, but in this text, it's clear that the Apostle Paul considered it a great privilege to be able to preach Christ. It wasn't just a job for him. It was a, a grace, a, a pleasure, a treasure to him. And he refers to his subject matter, as he often does, he'll summarize sort of what his message was, like we preach Christ, or I determined to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. He likes to sort of summarize the force of his message. And here he refers to his subject, subject matter as the unsearchable riches of of Christ, or if we wanted to use some synonyms, we might say the unfathomable wealth of Christ, the incomprehensible treasure that is Christ, or that is found in Christ. As we continue to work through this chapter and study Christ the mediator, we should consider it a privilege, like the apostle, not simply just for the one who's teaching, for the one who's preaching, but we should consider it a privilege that we are able to sit and to hear what he refers to as the unsearchable riches of Christ, that we can publicly gather and, and listen to someone speak about Christ and read from the Scriptures about Christ. But physical hearing in all of these things is not enough. We have to hear and be taught by the Spirit. We need spiritual hearing when it comes to the unsearchable riches of Christ. John writes in John 16, verses 13 and 14, these are the words of Jesus. He says, When the Spirit of truth comes, He will guide you into all the truth, for He will not speak on His own authority, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will declare to you the things that are to come. He, that is the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, will glorify me. For He will take what is mine and declare it to you. That's the job of the Spirit. So as we come to the confession, really any biblical study, but as we come to the confession and what we might consider an intensified didactic study where we're really getting into, we're looking at a lot of scriptures and we're, we're stretching our minds more than normal, we need to pray that God, by the Holy Spirit, would take the things concerning Christ and declare them to us, preach them to our hearts. So let's pray, and then we'll look at this next paragraph in the Confession. Father, it is a great privilege to gather. It is a delight to our hearts to be able to see one another. To me, Lord, this is the crown of my week, to be able to see the faces of my brothers and sisters, to hear them sing. Lord, I pray that you'll bless our time. Lord, I pray that our time would be more than just natural 
uh, human camaraderie, but it would be spiritual fellowship uh, with the Lord Jesus. We ask that you would send your spirit to take all of these many scriptures that I'm about to read and preach them to us. Make them effectual in our hearts so that as we hear the word about Christ, we are changed, we're molded, we're shaped, our affections are stirred, and we leave here loving the Lord Jesus. And it's in His name that we pray. Amen. So last week we started what's going to be a, a, a schedule change. I told you every other Sunday night is going to be somebody else here, which means that every other Sunday night is when we're going to be jumping back into the confession, which means a, a few things. First, that means you're, it's going to be good for all of us, um, especially you all, to hear from the other men that are going to be preaching. Secondly, it means you need to be praying for those men and... and uh, supporting them with prayers, and also it means that we are in store for uh, what you all know that I love, which is a good, solid recap. Every two weeks now, we're going to have to recap because for me, it is important that I'm sure, to the best of my ability, that you remember every word that I said two weeks ago. So, the first paragraph of this chapter was an overview of Christ's work as mediator. Throughout this study, hopefully what you're learning not only is not only what we believe as a congregation and, and what the Scriptures teach about these various subjects, but also in your personal study, how to read the Confession. So the opening paragraph of these chapters is, it usually contains the, the seed of what else is going to be in the paragraph. And then it begins to open it up from there. So we looked at an overview of Christ's work as mediator. A mediator, you'll remember, is a go-between that must reconcile two parties who are at odds. A mediator has to be qualified to meet both of those parties on proper terms and reconcile them. All of that assumes what we learned in the chapter about sin. It assumes that because of sin we have been alienated from God and God from us and God has, has, has wrath and anger stored up for the sinner and therefore there is alienation that has to be fixed by reconciliation. So it's building, the confession is building a doctrine here. In the second paragraph, I entitled that one, The Person of Christ the Mediator. And what that was, was essentially an orthodox presentation, a biblical presentation of Christology. The Person of Christ, focusing primarily on His deity, I think. He is God and He is man without conversion, composition, or confusion of either of those natures. True God, true man, two natures, one person. Because He is two natures in one person, He can lay hands on God and He can lay hands on men and He can reconcile God and man. In, in rereading that paragraph again, I, I think the focus there was trying to get us to come to terms with His deity more than just His humanity. Um, the, the necessity of God the Son coming down. Then we move into paragraph 3 tonight which I've entitled The Fitness of Christ the Mediator. The fitness of Christ the Mediator. And what I mean by that is, if we take the word fit, if something is fit, it is perfectly suited and appropriate in every way for a particular use. So fitness 
is that which constitutes something appropriate to a particular end. The fitness is that which constitutes something appropriate to a particular end. When we talk about physical fitness, what we're saying is we want to get our bodies in a condition where they are appropriate to use in everyday life. We want to be fit and capable to live. So that's what we see in this paragraph. If we wanted to put it in the form of a question, the question is this. What is true about Jesus Christ that proves Him perfectly suited to mediate between God and men beyond the facts concerning His unique person and primarily His deity? Now, if we're thinking in a linear fashion, and I do think the confession is put together rather logically, next week we'll look at paragraph 4, which talks specifically about the actual work that he carries out as mediator. We, we see the language um, of him discharging his office. He undergoes punishment that's due to us, uh, which we should have borne and suffered. He has made, a sin and made sin and a curse for us. He endures grievous sorrows in his soul, painful sufferings in body. He dies. He's raised from the dead. He ascends to the heaven. He is presently making intercession. Someday he will return and judge. All of that's in paragraph 4. So if, we, if we're thinking logically... Paragraph 3 comes in between paragraphs 2 and 4. So, we've got the unique personhood of Christ, paragraph 2, and then we've got the, the specific work that He did, paragraph 4. Yes, God must come down to be man, and yes, this God-man must fulfill certain duties. What has to happen in this God-man and to this God-man in order to adequately fulfill those duties that are required of him. For example, he is to be made sin. Well, what is required of him to be made sin? Well, he can't be made sin if he is already in himself sinful. So we're going to see tonight he has to be sinless. And it's not sufficient to say, well, he's God. So obviously he's sinful. Yeah, but he's God and man. Paragraph 3 is the answer in that logical order. And this paragraph deals with the collaboration of the Father and the Spirit in fitting the man, Christ Jesus, for His work. So the work of mediation is primarily the work of the Son. But the Son does not carry out the work of mediation to the total exclusion of the Father and the Spirit. He doesn't ascend back into the heavens and the Father says, Hey, I was wondering where you were. Um, they, they all, there are, there's a, a, a unity in the Trinity in carrying out this work of mediation, but the Son is the, the primary actor, the God-man. So that's, that's what this paragraph is, is sort of setting up for us. The work of the Father, or, or the, the Father and the Spirit working together in fitting Christ to be the mediator. So first, we have a general summary of the person of Christ the mediator. It says, the Lord Jesus, in His human nature, thus united to the divine in the person of the Son. And we'll stop right there. There is the subject of this paragraph, the subject of the whole chapter. But it's sort of restating everything we learned in paragraph 2 in short form. It's bringing that, that summary from paragraph 2, bringing it over to paragraph 3, so that we have a starting point to launch into what paragraph 3 teaches. The orthodox person of Christ is required for mediation. We, it's not only 
essential that we are biblical in our understanding of Christ as mediator and, and or as Christ of Christ in His person. And it's not only essential that we are orthodox and we find our feet firmly planted in the roots of the church of Jesus Christ, but we have to also understand that for Christ to be our mediator, He has to be what the Bible says He is. He has to be what the, the church historic has found in the Scriptures Him to be. If He's not what the Bible teaches He is, then we don't have a mediator. So we, we have to start with that person. And notice how it describes that. I don't think the, the language is arbitrary. They, the, the confession gives Him one title, the Lord Jesus. And then it addresses His two natures, the Lord Jesus, in His human nature, thus united to the divine. That's two natures. And then it goes back to one person, in the person of the Son. Two natures, one person. The one person and I don't think I hit on this last week, the one person is the Son of God. Christ, as God-man, does not have personhood apart from the Son of God. It was the person of the Son of God who took to Himself the form of a servant. It wasn't a man who took on the person or the, the nature of, of, of uh, God. It was the Word of God who took upon Himself the nature of a man. So the person here that we're talking about is the Son of God. The Son took to Himself the nature of a man in the incarnation. That's why it says in the person of the Son. So that's who we're talking about. That's His person. And then it goes into what we might call the Trinitarian economy. It begins to address what the other members of the Trinity do or what roles they play in this, in fitting Him to be our mediator. It says, The Lord Jesus in His human nature, thus united to the divine, in the person of the Son, was sanctified and anointed with the Holy Spirit above measure. And this is really where we get into to some of the the deepest mysteries of the person of Christ in His humiliation. He's sanctified. He was sanctified. That is, we typically think of sanctification only in terms of systematic theology. So if you hear the word sanctification, we immediately begin to think of the process by which we put to death our sin and are made holy after the image of Christ, and we grow in holiness when we hear that word. But biblically speaking... The, the idea of sanctification is something being set apart as holy unto the Lord and designated for a particular use by God. And, and we, you have to keep that distinction, especially, especially when you get to the book of Hebrews, because the author to the Hebrews, whoever it was, didn't have, you know, Burkhoff's systematic theology. And when he saw the word sanctification, he's like, oh, that'd be a great term here. He was using the Bible's concept of sanctification and something being set apart in the, in the ceremonial law. So that's what this means. He was sanctified. He was designated for a particular use, for a particular purpose. And it says, anointed by the Holy Spirit above measure. Anointed I mean with, with the Holy Spirit. That being anointed in the old covenant system was to be consecrated publicly 
for a specific office. The prophets, the priests, and the kings. We see it primarily with the kings more often, and, and it's written of more often with regard to the kings. They would pour oil over their heads, and that was symbolic that everybody around them saw this man has been anointed the king. He has been appointed by God and set apart for a particular office. So he's sanctified, designated for a purpose. He's anointed, designated for a particular office. Now Jesus Christ was not anointed with oil. Nobody ever poured oil over his head to anoint him into his ministry. Now we have read of Mary who anointed his head and feet uh, later on. But he was never at the beginning of his ministry. A prophet didn't come to him and say, God has told me you are to be king. But he was anointed with the Holy Spirit and that above measure or without measure. Measureless amounts of the Holy Spirit. The confession here cites Psalm 45 and verse 7. Therefore God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. And that verse is interpreted by the author to the Hebrews, infallible interpretation, as a reference to Christ. So when he says, the oil of gladness, that is the author of that psalm, using the typical language of his day to prefigure the anointing of the Messiah, Christ. Then we get to the New Testament, there are multiple texts. Acts 4.27, the disciples were praying, and they pray, truly in this city... There were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. So they believed, the early church believed that God had anointed Jesus his servant. Acts 10.38, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. John 3.34, For he whom God has sent... That's a reference to Christ. Utters the words of God. For He, that is Christ, no, that, for that's God, for He gives the Spirit without measure. So the picture there is God the Father gives the Spirit without measure, without limit, to the one that He has sent, His Son, so that when His Son speaks, He's uttering the very words of God. He God the Father gives the Spirit to the Son. So while we are given varying measures of the Spirit's power and gifts, Christ Jesus was given unlimited power and unlimited gifts through the measureless anointing of the Holy Spirit. For it was His own Spirit. It was the Spirit of the Son of God. The Spirit of Christ. In Acts 4.18, it says Acts. I typed Acts. I think this is Luke. Jesus' reading says, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. And then Jesus later on says, These, This is fulfilled in your hearing. The Holy Spirit was given to Christ, here He says, to proclaim good news to the poor. That is, in order to His carrying out of His earthly ministry, His public ministry, the Spirit of the Lord was upon Him. So the Spirit of God is given to the Lord Jesus to strengthen and empower Him for His work. Now that's mysterious to us. I don't think we think about that very often because again, we very quickly jump to, yeah, but He's God. Yeah, but He's man. He's a man working under the anointing and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
The confession goes on to say, still speaking of the Lord Jesus, having in Him all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now that's taken straight from Colossians 2.3. Speaking of Christ, it says, In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now to understand that, we, you have to understand what was happening in Colossae. The, the heresy in, in Colossae that Paul was writing to combat in Colossae was some form of um, Jewish mystic Gnosticism. So you got the Jewish side of it, that it is just like in Galatia, really pressuring the believers to continue with the ceremonial law. Then you add to that a side of mysticism, which is pushing for extreme asceticism, self-discipline, self-mutilation, mortification, opposition to all outward pleasure. And then you add to that a side of Gnosticism, which is the idea that there's this some secret hidden intellect or wisdom that if we can all attain to it, that is the supreme goal in life. Jewish mystic Gnosticism. And you see that Paul writes Colossians, and over and over what he's trying to get them to see is that Christ, in what, what there is in Christ, in His person and in His work, is greater than all wisdom. It's greater than any secret wisdom, any, any known wisdom. It's greater than any other knowledge or intellect you could ever find. Christ is greater than any traditions that man could ever institute or, or try to keep up. Christ is sufficient to justify before God without the need for fulfilling legal requirements because He has fulfilled them. Christ is greater than any form of asceticism or self-mutilation um, or whatever. Christ, in Christ, is hidden or are hidden all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. There's no further you can go. That's what he's saying. In Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That idea of being hidden doesn't mean that it's hidden so that we can't find it. We would say hidden in plain sight. Like, we, like you've stuffed it all here and then God sets him up and says, there it is. Dig and begin to dig and to search and, and, and find all of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. It's all in Christ. That's what he's saying. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are compacted in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Any wisdom of any eternal value that we might seek is found in or disclosed by Christ. Any necessary knowledge that we need for salvation is found in and disclosed by Christ. 2 Peter 1.3, remember this from a while ago. His divine power has granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him. That's through the knowledge of God. We get everything that we need for life and godliness. Jeremiah says, If any man is going to boast, let him boast in this, that he understands and knows the Lord. Everything that we need for life and godliness comes through the knowledge of God. If any man is going to boast in anything, he needs to boast that he understands and knows the Lord. So the wisdom and knowledge that is most valuable and the, of, of supreme importance is the knowledge of and wisdom from God. Knowledge of wisdom from God. Jesus Christ is wisdom from God to us 
And through Christ, we have the fullest revelation of God. So that everything we need that pertains to life and godliness, we can find in Christ. If any man would ever boast, let him boast that he understands and knows God through Christ. That he's made that his supreme aim and his supreme study. That's what Paul's saying in Colossians 2.3. As one commentator says, the treasures, of wis- the treasures of wisdom are hidden not from us, but for us in Christ. It's not something that we can't find. It's something that God has clearly given in His Son, and we have to go and find it. Now, if we want to connect this with the work of the Spirit that we've already studied, Isaiah 11.2 says, The Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. That kind of brings all of this together. The Holy Spirit of God descending upon Christ is the spirit of wisdom and the spirit of knowledge and the spirit of the fear of the Lord. That's all in Christ. Continuing, it says, In whom, that is in the Lord Jesus Christ, it pleased the Father that all fullness should dwell. Again, straight from Scripture, Colossians 1.19, For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Colossians 2.9, For in Him the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. All of God dwells bodily in the man, Christ Jesus. Not simply out of necessity, not simply out of obligation, not because the Father said, well, I guess I'll give the fullness of the Godhead to this man, Jesus. But it says, it pleased the Father. In Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. God is pleased to have it this way. This this infinite condescension that we can't imagine. The Father is pleased that it is that way. He says in Matthew 3.17, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. There's nothing in the entirety of the divine scheme of redemption, the whole history of redemption, especially with regard to the person and the work of Christ, that the Father would do differently. He's never going to look back and say, Well, I wish I would have come up with a better plan, because there's no better plan that gives more glory to His Son than this one, than that all the fullness of God would be pleased to dwell in Christ. The Bible says, whatever the Lord pleases, that He does. He did it, so we know that it pleases Him. The Father dwells in immutable delight in the Son, and that includes in the incarnation. So the Father is pleased, and thus He purposed it to be this way. The Spirit sanctifies and anoints Christ for His work, and then strengthens Him in His work. Now what is the goal of all this? The, the intention that's set forth. The goal of the Spirit sanctifying and anointing the man Christ Jesus. The confession says, to the end that. So we know we're about to see why all of this had to take place. What's the goal? To the end that, being holy, harmless, undefiled, and full of grace and truth. So we states here first his moral perfection. Being holy, being harmless, being undefiled, straight from Scripture, Hebrews 7, 26, it, is, it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, 
and exalted above the heavens. That moral perfection that we see in Christ flows from the Spirit's work. The, Spirit, the Holy Spirit makes Him holy. That thing in Mary was called the holy thing. He sanctified her substance and brought out this God-man. Again, we can't be tempted to run to the extreme and say, well, He's God, so obviously He's holy because He's man. And yet He's still holy, harmless, and undefiled. While it is important that the mediator be a man, he also has to be a holy man. He has to be a sinless man. Only a man can represent men before God, but only a perfect and sinless man can enter into the presence of God without being destroyed. So he has to be holy, harmless, and undefiled. That's his moral perfection. And then it says, and full of grace and truth. From John 1.14, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So all of the fullness, here's the picture, all of the fullness of the Godhead dwells bodily in Christ. Christ, in bodily form, is full of all that is God. Of all that God is as God, He's full of it. Christ is the full, final revelation of God to men. And He is that revelation with men. Christ is the embodiment of God's gracious dealings with man. Christ is the embodiment of God's self-revelation to man. I'll quote here from John Gill. Speaking of Christ, it says He was full of grace, the Spirit, and the gifts of the Spirit, of all the blessings of grace, of justifying, pardoning, adopting, sanctifying, and persevering grace, of all the promises of grace, of all light, life, strength, comfort, peace, joy. He's full of all of that. And also truth, of all gospel truths. And as He had the truth, the sum and substance of all the types and prophecies concerning Him, in Him. See the picture. All that God wants to say to us and do for us is in Christ. All that He wants to say to us, the truth, the revelation of God, Christ. All that He wants to do for us, the grace of God, Christ. It's all in Him. He's full of grace and full of truth. The mediator had to be a man in order to come and to dwell with men in the place of men, but he also must be full of all that God is, especially that which God seeks to convey to men most clearly in order to rightly represent God to those men. John there is not trying to give a full, a full systematic doctrine of what it means that Christ was God or that Christ was man. He's simply stating, he's summarizing that this Christ, this God-man is full of grace and truth. Everything God wants us to know about Himself and everything God wants us to do or wants to do in us, grace and truth. Christ is the embodiment of all of that. Full of grace, full of truth. And the end goal is, in all of that, is that he might be thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator and surety. 
I said thoroughly. The confession says throughly. That's just an old, old way of saying thoroughly. Completely, adequately. Furnished. That means he's given everything that he's needed. If you're renting a house and it's thoroughly furnished, it's got a refrigerator and a couch. He's thoroughly furnished to execute the office of mediator. That's go-between, that's reconciler. And then we have this word surety. And if you read old writers, you see that word surety a lot. A surety is one who takes full responsibility for somebody else. Hebrews 7.22, the ESV says this makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. The King James uses the word surety. It's the personal noun form of a guarantee or a security. We, we might think in terms of a down payment or a security deposit. So a surety is the personal form of that. He is a person who has the means and the willingness to set himself up as the, the security deposit for the sake of somebody else. He puts himself as their surety, takes all of their responsibility onto himself, seeing that whatever part of the deal they have, he is now taking the responsibility for, so that even if they don't uphold their part of the bargain, he still has to come through. He still will be held responsible for that because he's entered in voluntarily as a surety. That's what Christ has done. He's thoroughly furnished to step in and take all of our responsibilities and all of our liabilities onto Himself so that, knowing full well that we can't, and, know, and so that when we don't and aren't able to uphold the, the bargain, our end of the deal, primarily here would be the covenant of works, it all comes back on Christ as the surety for His people. He stands in their place and upholds their responsibility. And he's thoroughly furnished to execute that office of mediator between God and man and surety, upholding our responsibility. The work of the Spirit and the pleasure of God established Jesus Christ as the fully furnished mediator, able and willing to stand in the place of and take full responsibility for guilty sinners in bringing them to God. Notice also at the end, that Christ is not simply a self-proclaimed mediator. It says, which office he took not upon himself, but was thereunto called by his Father. So the Lord Jesus did not act alone. Again, he wasn't a self-proclaimed, self-diagnosed mediator. He acted in accordance with the call and the will of his Father. The confession here I believe references Hebrews 5.5. 5, 5. So also Christ did not exalt Himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by Him who said to Him, You are My Son, today I have begotten You. Now who says you are My Son except the Father? The Father appoints Him as high priest, mediator. John 3.17 says, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Now if we rearrange the words there, the implication is God did send His Son into the world that the world might be saved through Him. He sent His Son. John 17 and verse 18, Jesus prays to His Father, As you sent Me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. 
John 20 and verse 21, As the Father sent me, so I am sending you. The Father sent the Son. It was the Father's idea. The Father's initiative. It was the Father, the confession says, who also put all power and judgment in His hand. The Father has given to the Son all power and ability to judge. We looked at this when we looked at that first paragraph. John 5.22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. John 5.27, And He has given Him authority to execute judgment because He is the Son of Man. Now that language is interesting. Because He is the Son of Man. Now remember that, that reference to the Son of Man is dealing especially with the incarnate Word. The Word made flesh. The Father has given Him authority to execute judgment because He has come, the Word incarnate. It is a very special mediatorial authority that Christ has in His uh, condition as the Word made flesh. And, the confession says, gave Him commandment to execute the same. That is, to execute that judgment and that authority. John 5.36, Jesus says, For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. The Father sent the Son with works to accomplish. He had an itinerary to fulfill, and that's what He's come to do. The work that the Father gave Him. Matthew 28, 18, Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority cannot be given to the Son from anybody except the one who already has all authority in heaven and on earth. The Father gives it to the Son. Acts 2.36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. It was God's prerogative to establish His Son as Lord and Christ. Or as we see in Psalm 2 and verse 6, God speaking says, As for me, I have set my King on Zion, my holy hill. God the Father has established His ruler, His Son, to execute His mediatorial reign, to execute judgment and authority. Now, this is not in the confession, but this is a, a very interesting passage, 1 Corinthians 15, 24 through 28. And I don't profess to have my mind wrapped around this completely, and from, from my reading, I don't think anybody does. 1 Corinthians 15, 24 to 28 says, Then comes the end. When He, speaking of Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power, for He must reign until He has put all enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for God has put all things in subjection under His feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that He is accepted who put all things in subjection under Him. In other words, He's not talking about God the Father. God the Father is not going to be subject, subjected to the Son. 
when all things are subjected to Him, then the Son Himself will also be subjected to Him who put all things in subjection under Him, that God may be all in all. Now the idea seems to be that when Christ the Mediator has accomplished all of the work that has been given to Him by His Father, redemption has been accomplished, it has been applied, all enemies have been vanquished, all of the work has been done, that at least, and I'm not going to go any further than this, but at least it seems that what we call the mediatorial reign of Christ will come to an end and He will no longer, and this is, I think, He will no longer rule as mediator. He won't be a mediate king. He will be an immediate king and sovereign where He will rule directly in communion with His people for eternity. The end of the mediation, the mediation will be over. There will be no mediation. We'll go right into the presence of God for eternity. So there will come an end to this, this mediation the way that it is now in some sense. And He's going to deliver the kingdom to the Father having accomplished all of the work. God gave Him the commandment to execute it and He will one day be able to stand and say, I have completed all of the work. It's done. So as we've seen a few weeks ago, that work of Christ the Mediator do, does not just deal with personal salvation or even the corporate salvation of the church, but it, it's the execution of power and authority over all creation. He is the ruler over all creation. The Father has appointed Him to that and is pleased to have Him there. So I'll conclude with this. All the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, not from us, but for us. No study will be as profitable as the study of Christ. No contemplation will be as profitable as contemplation of Christ. No matter how far we get into eschatology, no matter how far we get into ecclesiology, as important as those things are, if we were to spend our whole lives just studying this mysterious person, the God-man, and His work, which yes, has implications for the church and ecclesiology, yes, it has implications for eschatology, and I do believe those things will become more and more clear as we focus on the person. As we get into this study, there's no other study. It's, he, it's all here in Him. We study Christ. All of the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, not from us, but for us. It's given. God has said, study Him. It, everything I've been doing, everything I'm going to do right here in this person, study Him. Set yourself to study Him. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your Son. And I'll, I'll be the first to admit these things are too high for me and too deep for me. Lord, when, when I begin to speak of Christ, it is as if 
I'm on the edge of blasphemy with every syllable. Because I can't wrap my mind around true God and true man in one person. I can't wrap my mind around infinite condescension. Father, we will never be able to understand holy, blameless, undefiled, separate from sinners, exalted above the heavens. We will not see that. Even in eternity we will study and study and study this holy character. I pray that you would set our church on this pathway, on this conveyor belt of just studying Christ, that we might know Him, that we might know the power of His resurrections, that we might have the fellowship of His sufferings, that we might see in this person everything valuable, everything of infinite worth, everything to be treasured, everything to be mimicked, everything to follow, to pattern our lives after, so that when we see how beautiful it is, we would love, like we read of our brothers and sisters even now and throughout church history, we would love to suffer for Him. We would love to die for Him just to be counted worthy, to, to mimic Him in some form or some fashion. Father, I don't think we're there. I don't think I'm there in my study of Christ yet and my affections for Him. But I ask that by Your Spirit, You'd teach me. Spirit, Holy Spirit, take the things that are, belong to Christ and declare them to my heart and to all of our hearts. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We'll stand and sing one more song.